The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. Welcome to the Gospel According to with Ryan and Mike, a conversation designed to explore what makes the gospel good news in various books and topics of the Bible. Revelation 2 and 3 are often seen as the cheap seats of Revelation. Yet, upon a closer reading, it shows the apocalyptic vision of these chapters. In speaking directly to these churches, Jesus gives us an insight not only into what these churches are going through, but also who we ourselves are. Get ready to get wet. You're getting ready to enter the splash zone. Okay, so Mike, now we get to talk about what is probably considered the safest section of Revelation, (laughs) which is the seven churches of Asia. But we have to read this section in connection with the whole rest of the book. Yeah. Because I think even though the seven churches of Asia feel somewhat more familiar to us. Sure. Yeah. Everybody teaches on this part. Yeah. Exactly. Right. They are just as apocalyptic as the whole rest of the book. Absolutely. In our last conversation, we started going more into the text, trying to apply all of the principles we laid out in earlier conversations. And we went through Revelation chapter one, the second half of that, and asked, who is Jesus? Mm -hmm. Who is Jesus? And we said that he is the true son of man who is God incarnate, and he has defeated death and is now reigning. Mm -hmm. That is who Jesus is. Now we're going to get to go into chapters two and three. What are we going to talk about? All right. So I want to begin um, by just overviewing chapters two through three and highlight this recurring pattern that we're going to see in all um, seven letters or messages or dispatches and and the basic content of these seven. Um, And then really get into that question you ask, who who are we? And, And with that, I want to talk about our calling and I want to talk about the charge that's given in each of these letters. Okay, so we're going to do two things. We're going to first talk about just the structure of each of these letters, mm-hmm. and then we're going to talk about who are we. All right, so take us into the structure. All There's right. obviously seven of these letters, but they're also similar in form. What is that form? Yeah, so, so th- one, this is just so consistent with the rest of the book. We talked about how highly organized and structured the book of Revelation is, and these letters are, are very much like that, right? So, so even with the symbolism and the rigorousness of using you know, the seven churches, there were more than seven churches in Asia, but he's zeroing in on these seven for that symbolic reference. But there's a pattern in, that's consistent across all seven of these letters. Um, and there, it's a six-fold pattern. I'm going to go ahead and say this. I don't expect anybody to memorize this or uh, take in every detail here, but I want to just get this out there and then we can put Yeah, and we'll, we'll put this in the show notes. How yeah, about we put this in the show notes? That way people can go and reference this in more detail. So yeah. go and take us through that. But, but let's get it through. So the first thing that we're going to see in every letter is Christ is going to address the assemblies through their heavenly representative. And so at the beginning of each letter, you'll see this phrase, to the angel of the church at Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum, right? Okay. So he addresses the churches through their heavenly representative. The second thing that we'll see in every letter is Christ identifies himself in light of the opening vision. So you'll see this opening phrase, the one who does this, like in in, uh, the letter to Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. So he identifies himself drawing on imagery of that opening vision. And you'll notice um, in this self-revelation, he's going to highlight things about himself for the church and what they need to hear to give them the perspective that they need. So you can kind of draw a connection between the self-identification and the body of the letter. But 
Anyway, on to the next thing. The third thing that you're going to see is that Christ addresses the state of the churches. He'll say, I know, and then continue. And with some churches, there are some some positive things that he'll observe about them. Uh, In some cases, uh, there are some negative things to observe about them, but he addresses the state of the churches. The fourth thing we'll see is that he either admonishes and or encourages the churches. Um, there are there are some things that that churches are doing really well, and he'll encourage them about that. There are some things that some of the churches are are not doing well that they need to repent of, and he'll admonish them towards that. Um, some of the churches, like Smyrna, Philadelphia, are just enduring hardship and persecution. And so there's no admonishment at all. It's simply just holding them up, encouraging them, um, fanning their flame as best he can. But, yeah, but either way, seven. that's going to be significant yeah. later in the book. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the fifth thing Christ calls the churches to hear, you'll see this repeating phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says of the churches. And then the sixth thing, Christ promises the kingdom to the overcomers it'll or, or to the conquerors, to him who overcomes some of your translations may say or to him who conquers and 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 there's a promise about the kingdom of god that's given to each of these seven churches to the conqueror and the imagery of these promises is drawn from the visions of hope that are found later in revelation particularly chapters 21 through 22 as well as other passages from the prophets so again Very good. that's that's yeah. a lot of info but just just getting that it out is, there to observe to know, this pattern. and if i can make a couple observations about that sure. you know as you said each of them begins with a, a address of Jesus. Each of these go back to what was said in chapter one with that vision that John mm-hmm. has. So, for example, you see for exa- in chapter two, verse one, the words of him who holds the seven stars. That was yeah. in chapter one. Uh, verse eight, the words of the first and the last. That was in chapter one. The words of him who has the two-edged sword, verse 12. That's chapter one. Each mm-hmm. of those go to, back to chapter one. Yeah. Likewise, then... Each of the final promises that he gives, for example, verse 7, chapter 2, eating the tree of life, um, not be hurt by the second death, down in verse 11, the new name given in verse 17, each of these are going forward to chapters 21 and 22. And so I do think it's really important to recognize it's not... Revelation chapter 1 has this grand majestic vision. Revelation 4 has this grand majestic vision. But whew, we have these really simple things in 2 and right, 3 yeah. that we're able to understand. Absolutely. Th- this is kind of the segue mm-hmm. from that grand vision of Jesus in chapter 1 to that grand vision of the throne of God in chapter 4. But we have to see how it connects to it, or the real meaning of these letters, I think, are going to be lost on us. Absolutely. Yeah, very good. And, and and there's you know we're we're focusing on the big picture. There have been a lot of great studies that that unpack the the some some of the depths and details uh, that's going on in these in these letters. But but just taking in this sort of big picture view of of these absolutely letters. yeah. And you know, and this is this this would be a really good devotional for someone to do in their free time after listening to this. Absolutely is just sit down, read Revelation two and three, make a list of all the promises. Yeah. Read Revelation 21 and 22, see the fulfillment of those promises. Absolutely. Read Revelation 2 and 3, see the descriptions of Jesus. Read Revelation 1, see those connect back. Once you start seeing some of those connections, a lot of the significance and the meaning behind the words of Jesus are really going to come through. Yeah. So now let's get to the content. Yeah. This is all about the Word of God Himself, yeah. Jesus, God incarnate, who's now arisen to the right hand of the Father, 
This is all about Jesus speaking to these churches. Mm -hmm. What is he telling these churches and what is the message that he's given to them? Yeah, the let's let's deal with sort of the bigger idea of identity or calling and then kind of get to that specific charge. So so first think about calling. Um, if you look back at Revelation 1 and verse 6 as, at the opening of this, this letter, when he talks about what Jesus has accomplished, it says he made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father to whom be the glory and dominion forever and ever. And if we jump ahead to chapter 5, when we're going to see this, this lamb who was slain um, and what he's accomplished in his victory at the cross, he was slain, he purchased for God with his blood, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and he made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth, right? That, that sense of identity and a vocation and calling for the people of God in the book of Revelation is so linked through the rest of the scriptures, right? In Genesis 1, how, how are people introduced? Image of God, ruling as God's representatives. In, in Exodus 19, again, how are the, the people of God described as his holy nation, as his royal priesthood? And so carrying forward this, this sense of humanity's vocation um, before God from the very beginning, or God's purpose for humanity from the very beginning, that we would be um, his representatives on the earth, that, that, that it's our role to manifest and magnify the reign of God, the stuff of God, the way of his kingdom, right? That, that we're to be the people who, who are engaging in true worship, right? Not idolatry, not devolving into idolatry, but, but offering up true worship to the creator. That we're people who are doing justice. We're people who are exemplifying his humility, putting on his love and, and filling the earth with the stuff of God. And so understanding um, these, these letters to the seven, seven churches or seven assemblies has to begin by understanding, well, what is our what is our role in the divine drama in the first place that we are this royal priesthood? So that's right. that, that's the big yeah. picture. And, and, and I think really that's the central purpose of, of seeing Revelation 2 and 3 in the larger story of Revelation yeah. is this is situating the churches within the drama. Yeah. And so, you know, going back to Revelation as a drama, you certainly have the antagonist. Yeah. You have the serpent who's going to come about. You have the hero, Jesus, mm -hmm. who's risen and defeated death. You have the father who's empowering all of this. You have the spirit who's at work among the saints. Mm -hmm. But then you have the question, all right, if there are these great cosmic entities mm -hmm. that are waging war against one another, you have the serpent fighting the son of man all the while the Ancient of Days is on the throne and the mm -hmm. spirits burning like fire. Where in the world do Christians fit into mm -hmm. this? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the hobbits of the mm -hmm. story. Yeah. Where it's like, with, with all of these great figures warring against one another, mm -hmm. where do the Christians fit into this? Yeah. And I think what the words of Jesus are doing in Revelation 2 and 3 are speaking the Christians into the drama. Yeah, absolutely. It's showing, as you just said, we are the kingdom of priests. Mm -hmm. We are rulers and priests who are now to exercise dominion over the powers of sin and then over God's good creation. Yeah. You know, Mike, whenever I was teaching through Revelation a couple of years ago, I went around the room and I asked the room, this is a group of mainly Christians, um, are you priests? Are you a priest? Are you a priest? Are you a priest? Not one person said yes. Mm -hmm. That is something that typically is not central to our identity as Christians. Yeah. And we miss we think so of ourselves, much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? We think of ourselves as disciples. We think of ourselves as Christians. We think of ourselves as saints, all of which is true. 
But the role and the vision and the identity that Revelation is giving to us is I am a ruler in God's mm-hmm. kingdom. I am a priest in God's kingdom. Mike, are you a priest? Amen. Yes. Are you a king? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Amen, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, what that means is that by we God's are the grace. ones— Right, all by God's power, right? It's not that we've seized the power for ourselves or that we have made ourselves of these great tabernacles, but Mm -hmm. rather God has made us priests. God has made us rulers. And as you just said, if you look back to Genesis 1, that's how it was meant to be from the first place. Adam and Eve were meant to be the ones who were the priests in God's garden. They were meant to be the ones who were rulers in God's garden. Ezekiel 28 is another great passage to reference for that. But as you see what Revelation is doing is it's going back and just trying to give us an identity of who we are in this. We are priests. We are rulers. And that, I think, really needs to be much more central to our identity as Christians than oftentimes we think. And let's let's connect this to what we saw last time in chapter one. Right. So so we've said from the beginning, God's intention for humanity is that we would be that royal priesthood. We would be his kingly priests. And yet we're lousy rulers historically, we're lousy priests historically, and yet there was one who was the true human, the true image of God, the true son of man, the true ruler, the true priest. And that's how how Jesus is described in chapter one, right? Why he's in this glorious, kingly, priestly description. And yet he, we saw in chapter one also, he made us as well to be this kingdom of priests. And so a, a lot of ways we could say, Chapters two through three of Revelation is is as it focuses on each individual church. It's it's a dispatch. It's a message to each church to help them live up to that calling of being that royal priesthood. Absolutely right. And and, and as you just said there, you know, Adam was meant to be the ruler priest. Noah was meant to be the ruler priest. Israel was meant to be the other priest, the ruler priest. They all failed miserably. Mm-hmm. Yet then you have Jesus who comes on the scene as the true humanity, who is God incarnate, and he is the one who then lives out the purposes of God. He is the one who becomes the true king. He is the one who is the true priest. The book of Hebrews speaks to this also in great detail. But now he has then established a kingdom where his citizens are the royal priesthood. We in his kingdom are royal priests. So we could talk about this for a whole yeah, longer. It's absolutely. something I know we're both really passionate about. Yeah. But let's make sure we talk about the, the encouragement. Yeah. What is the encouragement that Jesus gives to each of these churches? He, he calls every church, every assembly to conquer, right? Because, again, this, here's this royal priesthood, but we're in the midst of the war. In, in the in the sequence of divine history, we are in the midst of this war, anticipating, waiting for God's judgment, waiting for to receive the kingdom in its fullness. And we're in the midst of this war. And so he's using this war language, calling his people to, some translations say, overcome. ESV says conquer. Um, but let's, let's think about what that means. And, and the idea here is conquest looks different for each assembly, depending on how they're being attacked, right? So with Ephesus, there are some things they're doing well. They're, they're really bold against certain forms of false teaching, but he says you've left your first love. And so for Ephesus, conquering means repenting of this divided allegiance, this, this failed devotion to the one who should be their first love. Um, with Smyrna and, and even later, uh, the, the sixth church, Philadelphia, um, the, the problem isn't one of allegiance like we see with Ephesus, but it's, it's their circumstances. It's these outside pressures, this tribulation, this persecution. And for them, conquer means endure, means persevere, means hang on. 
I've got you. And so it's a uplifting, encouraging. Um, for churches like Pergamum and Thyatira, um, the, the attack comes in the form of influence, demonic influence and idolatry and false teaching. And so for them, um, conquer means resisting certain influences and dealing with certain influences. These are, these, are, these are not problems from the outside. These are problems that have invaded the church from the inside. And, and you, one of the things that's interesting in the third, fourth, and fifth letter is where, where like what, when he addresses Ephesus and Smyrna and Philadelphia and Laodicea, he's addressing the church as a whole. But when we, when we look at um, Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis, he distinguishes between some in the, in the church and the, and the majority in the church. Um, so like with, with Thyatira, um, the majority are doing well, but there, there are a few that, that are unfaithful. Um, in, in Pergamum, that's sort of flipped. The majority are unfaithful, but there are a few. Same thing with Sardis. The majority are unfaithful, but there are a few who've not soiled their garments. And so even within the churches, conquering means one thing for a majority and another thing for the, for the few. Um, but, but understanding these various responses, uh, you know, let, let's, let's take a little soapbox moment for a second. Sometimes we, we reduce uh, or reduce our relationship with God in a transactional sense or, or think just merely in terms of all this checklist of things that we're supposed to do or whatever. Even um, yeah. And, and, and realizing, no, no, we understand who we are before God from this calling uh, language of royal priesthood. And, and these admonitions and these encouragements are, are about telling us how we can conquer in the midst of the war and not be swept away by this satanic attack, whether it comes in the form of idolatry, whether it comes in the form of, of influence and, and deception and, and uh, uh, um, um, I lost my word, um, Anyway, I forgot the word, but it, it's all right. it'll, it'll yeah. come back but, but, or, or but persecution. Point, right? And, you know, yeah. I think really what you just said that Revelation 2 to 3 is a microcosm of the whole book mm-hmm. to where we've talked about prologue already. Jesus yeah. has ascended. That is the antecedent for all of this. What each of these are showing is there's a war going on. God is going to execute judgment, and he will eventually give them the kingdom. Each of those movements are promised here. What Revelation chapters 2 to 3 are doing are really just summarizing and giving us a synopsis and a forecast of everything that's about to unfold. And and I don't want this point to be lost on us, that this is Jesus knowing the churches. Yeah, yes. This is Jesus knowing the churches. And I think the assurance for us is in times of tribulation and trial and test and suffering— Jesus knows our weaknesses. He knows our works. He knows our toils. And the same promise that he gave to these Christians, he's likewise assuring to us that he knows us and we know that through him we will win. That's really what Revelation 2 and 3 are all yeah. about. Yeah. You know, to, to tie into our, our emphasis throughout our, our study and what we're seeing the emphasis throughout Revelation, the, each letter begins with a declaration that your God reigns and the promise that you will reign with him. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and I would, oh man, I mean, I would love to spend an hour talking with you through each of these promises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But just how rich each of them are to know that we as Christians are going to suck trial, are going to go through trials, we are going to suffer, we are going to have hardships. Yet, amidst this tribulation of this world, God is promising we will conquer. 
we will overcome because we are in his kingdom. The lamb has already won. He will consummate the victory, and that's the promise that's given to these seven churches. So, Mike, let's take all this back to our main message of Revelation. How did did the letter to the seven churches, how do each of these letters relate to the message of the gospel? They declare boldly that God reigns through Jesus, and it offers the promise that we will reign with him as well. There you go. And I think that's really to see the full extent of this is in Revelation 2 to 3, you see not only is God reigning, but also he will one day reign through us. If we are faithful to him, if we're allegiant to the lamb, God then will reign and we will reign through him. God will overcome. We will conquer. That's the message. Thanks for listening to the Gospel According to Podcast. If you have any questions about what you heard today, please send us a voice message. We would really love to hear from you. Next time, Revelation 4 and 5 is better experienced than explained. In this episode, Mike will take us through the heavenly experience of this vision, which should lead us to worship before the one on the throne and the Lamb. Don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media. Until next time, and for all time, your God reigns.